It's time for our health and wellness feature. We, of course, talk all matters health on a Wednesday at this time. Uh, today, we're focusing on the National Health Insurance Bill. Uh, joining me in studio is Dr. Gatleho Mutudi, who is Managing Director at the Board of Healthcare Funders. Dr. Mutudi, good morning to you. Thank you for coming into studio this morning. Good morning, Kathy, and thanks for having us. I think before we get into sort of your own thinking around the NHI and maybe some of the issues you want to raise. Just bring us on board in terms of helping us all understand who the BHF is and what work you actually do. So what is your role in this conversation? Okay. Um, the Board of Healthcare Funders is, is an association of largely medical aid schemes and other healthcare funders. Uh, in the Southern African region. We operate in about seven countries at the moment. Our work is largely in uh, policy assessment, determination, and we lobby and advocate for certain healthcare matters on behalf of our members uh, who are largely in the medical aid schemes. Um, you will hear a lot uh, of our discussions are actually peppered by the, the phrase or the, the name uh, health citizen. Um, who we prioritize, um, and these are the end users or the beneficiaries of the uh, the health funding uh, associations. So, so then, when we consider you, your reflections on the NHI, is the natural assumption to make then to say that this is a view that represents the collective of of medical schemes, which of course represent the private sector of medical healthcare. Yeah, the view I would say is uh, uh, maybe uniform around mm -hmm. the healthcare uh, funders because um, one, we generally are uh, regulated under an act. So most of what the schemes do um, would be within a particular framework. Now, any change to either that framework or any other law that has an impact on that would have a similar impact on on any of the schemes and the third party funders we we talk about schemes but there are other organizations that are linked to schemes for example those who administrate uh, or do, who, who perform administrative functions mm -hmm. who do um uh, what you call managed health care that determine the appropriateness of the healthcare services that are given to the the health citizens so there would be uniformity largely and any impact that we assess uh, would actually have, I would say, an equal uh, impact on the on the schemes and, and the third-party uh, associations. So uh, ultimately here, we're talking about a sector that is directly affected um, by some of the uh, changes, at least to how the health framework would look like under the national health insurance. You, your members are directly affected by that. Definitely. Um, directly and indirectly. Mm -hmm. Directly because um, the NHI bill does make mention of medical aid schemes, uh, particularly two clauses. Uh, I think it's uh, Section 6.0 as well as Section 33. Um, but indirectly, there are other health reform uh, uh, amendments or changes that are not contained within the NHI that have an impact on medical aid schemes. And we often talk about the health market inquiry, for example, the Medical Schemes Amendment Act, etc. Now, 
when you look at health reform uh, in total and uh, even outside just the discussion on HI, the broader universal health coverage discussion, it will have an impact on schemes and, and how they function other than the direct ones that I, that I mentioned. So there is definitely a vested interest of schemes and their beneficiaries and they need to, to be aware and take a mm. uh, note of the discussions that are happening around NHI. When we talk about private health care, the role that it plays, let's say, in, in a society like South Africa, often, you know, the conversation is framed, or at least there's a perception that private medical health schemes are the bad people in the room. So these are the guys that are trying to fleece as much money out of healthcare users as, as possible. The NHI comes as some form of a savior to that. Because what it does is that it's going to equal the, the playing field. So I will be able to access good health care without necessarily being fleeced of, of thousands effectively as what currently is seen to be happening. Is that a, a, a fair um, description of, of what is happening in, in reality uh, when it comes to the relationship between the public and the private healthcare system in this country? The, the perception is there and it's real. Mm -hmm. uh, but I must hasten to say that there's also information asymmetry in terms of what people see and what is actually happening. The first thing about the cost of healthcare and how schemes operate, I think a lot of people are not aware that medical schemes are not for profit. We do agree that there are third-party uh, service providers, uh, administrators, uh, are for-profit companies. Now, therefore, the not-for-profit status uh, uh, for schemes also needs to be looked at carefully. Uh, schemes are accredited and have an oversight role that is played by the Council of Medical Schemes to make sure that they adhere to the Medical Schemes Act. Uh, under which they are registered and that they, they function. Now, if you look at what the provisions within the Act are, the schemes are supposed to be uh, solvent and liquid. In that, at any one point, if a scheme receives no contributions at all for three or four months, they should still be able to honor uh, claims. To that extent, there is a regulation that says schemes must keep uh, uh, reserves of about 25% estimated on the contribution for, for the year. That is according to the Medical Schemes Act. What it means is that the schemes must turn a surplus, not just for the overall uh, operational uh, uh, processes, but on each option. So if the scheme has got five options, each and every one of those options must actually be sustainable on its own. So the issue of having a surplus is actually a requirement by law, and it's not a, a profit-making or profiteering, as it might seem. The second thing is that schemes belong to the members. There is no shareholding in schemes. So if a scheme reports a surplus um, for, for that uh, financial year, the money just goes to, to reserves. The other thing that I want to explain is that if you look at the Council for Medical Schemes report, most of the schemes actually spend most of the money that they take from members as contributions on healthcare, and we report that as a claims ratio. 
And most schemes reported claims ratio of about 80%, closer to 90%. There are some schemes, depending on what's happening that year, sometimes you find that they have a claims ratio even more than 100%, which means that they dip into into their reserve. So the issue of making a surplus is actually a requirement to make sure that this is uh, sustainable. And I think that's what uh, usually the, 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 the information in symmetry uh, uh, cannot cover. Now, schemes also make sure that uh, uh, sort of the, the Council for Medical Schemes make sure that uh, the third-party providers or administrators don't necessarily uh, make a lot of money from schemes. They keep a check on what they call the non-healthcare expenditures, and they recommend that this this is kept to below fifteen percent, and that's something that the schemes do adhere to. Mm. Yes. So, so then, how do do we describe the exceptional rate at which healthcare in I think not just in South Africa but I think the world over mm. at, at which it increases mm. because it is these very same medical schemes that sometimes are as you're saying according to legislation making sure that they have a surplus but it is those same schemes that are also increasing their rates at above inflation and unfortunately, that it's unavoidable. Uh, there's a there's an interesting thing that that happened. I think, if I remember, just uh, around '98, uh, about the the concept of prescribed minimum benefits that was introduced. Now, prior to the introduction of the PMBs, as the, as we call them, we had defined benefits or restricted benefits where you'd be given hundred thousand rand, for example, for hospitalization for that year, and you'd have an unfortunate incident where you're in hospital and the money runs out. And unfortunately, the hospital would kick you out because they can't get money. And what would happen invariably is that you then get referred to a public sector and there was this concept of dumping. Now, PMBs were introduced to protect the beneficiary to make sure that they've got continuous cover. Through that, um, the Council for Medical Schemes then developed a list of conditions for which you you will you may never run out of benefits, two hundred and seventy conditions for in hospital treatment, and twenty six uh, plus one. The one is actually HIV. It came later. That you should always have cover. That's the first thing. The second thing is that there's a regulation, regulation eight uh, um, in the in the act that says whatever is charged. So the scheme must actually pay the invoice value, meaning that. As a practitioner, if I see a patient and it's a PMB diagnosis, I could basically write anything on the invoice, and the scheme by law is obliged to pay. Now, that was something that the schemes tried to challenge. Um, I think it was around 2008, but unfortunately it was not uh, successful because we wanted a declaratory order that would say, what does pay at cost mean? And at that time, um, the Health Professionals Council had an ethical ceiling which said whatever the going rate is, prescribed minimum benefit contingent should never be more than three times the rate. When the um, national price reference list was also uh, 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 taken off, and this was uh, um, also a court process around the same time, that ethical ceiling was removed. Now what it meant uh, was that schemes had to go into a world where there are no tariffs that are set. They had to uh, configure what it would cost to actually run schemes 
with a proviso that they have to pay for all PMBs at cost. Now, the, that raised um, the, the entry level into schemes. Now, the cheapest uh, uh, option now is around 1,000 rand per beneficiary per month. And it can be cheaper than that because otherwise you fall foul of not being able to cover your, um, your, your prescribed minimum benefits. That's the first thing. Secondly, there is a concept of um, health inflation. And typically you have your CPI, uh, which will be at a particular rate, and you add about 2 or 3% above that and you get your health inflation. And in that 2 or 3%, there's issues of utilization, um, there's issues of, of case mix um, uh, that uh, become important in terms of the actual calculation to make. So whatever the, uh, the CPI is, you almost have to increase slightly more than that. And that's why there has been these increases that are out of step with what we seem to be saying. So are you saying that by design, medical aids, at least medical schemes, as in their current structure, cannot be any cheaper than what they are? They could be mm -hmm. with reform. And this is what we've been advocating to the Council for Medical Schemes for a long time. So when the PMBs were introduced, um, the intention was that there should have been a review. In fact, it's contained in the regulation that they need to be reviewed every two years. The review only happened once. Um, there is a current process that has been happening for about six years. It hasn't been concluded. Now, the, 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 the discussions for, uh, for that review are that the PMBs and actually the medical aid benefits should be more primary or preventative uh, care forecast. And if you've got packages like that, it would actually go a long way towards reducing what it costs to have a medical scheme. At the moment, the, 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 the benefits are very hospice-centric. Most schemes will tell you that they spend uh, anything from 35 to about 45% of their entire claims mm. on hospitalization. And the, the, that is upside down. You want to spend more money on primary care uh, services or preventative care uh, packages to do this. So it could be cheaper uh, if we are able to reorientate uh, how the benefits are actually structured. But unfortunately, schemes are now hamstrung because the long says make provision for this 280-something conditions uh, as a basis. Uh, and unfortunately, as I said, it's 270 conditions in hospital and then 26 out of hospital, and those are largely uh, chronic conditions. So, so effectively what you're, do, what you're doing is that you're offsetting the risk yes. of what happens if all of your members would need sick, yes. access to, to, to treatment at, at the same time. Yes, exactly. Let's talk about the national health insurance and how this then is effectively changing the environment of medical care in this country. So the national health insurance, as I said, that there are direct uh, implications the, 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 the main one that uh, causes uh, consternation in the industry is the one that says when the NHI is fully implemented, schemes can only provide complementary cover. Now, the, the, there is a restriction, and some even argue that there might be a constitutional infringement on people's uh, right to access health care, but we, we can pack that and discuss it later. 
the confusion first comes with uh, one, what does fully implemented mean? And I know there is some attempt in the schedules to try and describe that. And secondly, on uh, what is additional or complementary because cover, because uh, we don't know what the benefits uh, would be. We are told that uh, it would be comprehensive. And now that is not a legal definition. And how comprehensive can comprehensive be? So what it means is that schemes, schemes find themselves in a ledge of not knowing what is it that they will be allowed to cover. Does it mean that it will only cover uh, aesthetics or uh, cosmetic uh, or things that are allowed under discretionary health care? And it would actually just shrink the schemes to, um, uh, to a very tiny po uh, part of, uh, of health care. And I think the concern is if you are deliberately uh, um, collapsing schemes in that manner. What does it mean about general access to healthcare? I think mm. everybody knows about the challenges that the public sector has uh, in terms of their ability to to cater for for healthcare services. Secondly, we know that uh, universal health coverage is will be progressively realized, and what it means is that government will only provide services to the extent. Uh, to which that they can afford uh, or it can, uh, it can afford it. Does it mean that uh, in any particular year, as we've often seen, sometimes you, you, you need a particular procedure, you are scheduled at one of the hospitals in the public sector, and then when you are supposed to go for the procedure, you are told that electives are postponed for the next financial year. Does it then mean that at that time, schemes then would have to revise their benefits uh, uh, during the cycle. So it da it brings a lot of confusion. And I think all these things come from the, the, the translation of the policy of a single purchaser, um, which means that nobody else other than the fund mm. can buy healthcare services. And that in itself brings confusion. Does it mean, Kathy, if you are sick in the middle of the night and an HI, you can't hop off to the nearest pharmacy and buy yourself uh, a Panado? Because then you will be a purchase of healthcare services, but you are not the fund. Now, these are some of the things that we say. While there is good intention, uh, we contain within the NHI, there are many matters that are not clear, um, and they may actually defeat the purpose in terms of us uh, reaching what we need to uh, to do. Uh, if you want to implement universal health care. All right. We'll continue the conversation with Dr. Gatleho Mutudi, Managing Director at the Board of Healthcare Funders. It's time for your 11.30 news headlines. on SAFM. We continue the conversation on the talking point. We're looking at the NHI bill, at least from the perspective of uh, medical schemes this morning. Dr. Katlaro Mutudi is Managing Director at the Board of Healthcare Funders. Dr. Mutudi, you made an important point here about where schemes find themselves currently, and that's really uncertainty um, when it comes to what happens once the NHI has been fully implemented. Are part of the questions that schemes are asking now, are those related to the fact that the future of schemes seems to be very much in question? Uh, that is true, but I think the angle should really be what is the impact on the beneficiary. Because while 
I think many a time when we commentate, it looks like schemes are just looking for self-preservation. Mm-hmm. But there is a genuine concern about the beneficiary. What does it mean to, to them? Because I mentioned the issue of resource constraints. Um, and you, 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 you can spread that conversation pretty wide because it's not just about the funding element. It's also about um, the availability of the health workforce, um, also about the facilities, also about the quality of care um, that uh, they will be exposed to. So our point of departure has, has always been while we're looking at NHI as an important part of the healthcare reform, we should not be blind to everything else that needs to be done and why we are doing all this. Mm. It is the health citizen that needs to be looked at. So the uncertainty that we spoke about uh, uh, concerning schemes does impact um, the health citizen in terms of the access to, to healthcare services. What is going to be uh, the role uh, of the schemes, the, the relationship uh, with the private sector in general of, of government facilities, etc. The bill does try to uh, map out uh, the, 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 the relationship, but it's, there are many areas that, that are not quite clear. So, the, of course, part, part of the misnomer, and you, may, you mentioned um, uh, the, the marketing inquiry in, into the industry, uh, that effectively dealt with the fact that um, yes, private healthcare, of course, um, does provide at some level, um, you know, better services, but it's not a perfect service that people are getting and that there are serious gaps that the private sector has to deal with itself. And so um, if, if, if the NHI is about a funding mechanism that effectively says, well, there's so much that government is spending on subsidizing even private schemes, and that money then go, all goes into this one big pot, um, then there's more equitable distribution of funds across the board that benefit the majority. Is, is, not, is that not part of, of the thinking? Does it not address also issues of this misnomer that, well, of course, there will be issues of resource constraints because there's only so much money that is flowing to, to certain um, uh, facilities. Mm. It's true. I think the intention is to pool resources. Mm. But pooling of resources doesn't necessarily mean to say one pot. You can still have multiple players in the pool. And I'll, I'll go back to the recent example of how this country tackled the, the COVID pandemic. Um, at some point during the vaccination uh, process, it probably did not matter whether you went to Alexander Clinic or you went to uh, NetCare in Santin. The service was the same. There was no payment at that point of service. The only difference was maybe in the information that you provided. Mm-hmm. This thing. Now, we had government, we had employers, we had schemes, all funding the same process. And the process was, I think, arguably seamless. And people could not tell the difference whether you are public funded or by your employer or by the medical scheme. Now we're saying that that is an approximation of what could work, and we actually saw it work, albeit under uh, um, different circumstances. So you can have pooling that equalizes. Now imagine a, situa- a scenario where you say, 
uh, I'm going to standardize things. A consultation um, is going to be charged at this level. This is where we all source things. But it doesn't matter who pays for it. You could be having your scheme pay for that service at the same rate. Uh, you could have access to the same doctor, to the same hospital, regardless of who uh, pays for the service. And we're thinking that you can still have equity um, under those uh, circumstances, and it has been uh, proven. And I think the ch challenge comes when you say you want to have a pool of resources. And I'll, I'll, I'll talk about, you've mentioned some misnomers. Mm -hmm. So we don't know what the budget will be for 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 um, NHI, but let's make some assumptions. Currently, uh, maybe about two years ago, the South African Health Report, I think 2015, 2020, reports that in, I think, 2020, 2021, the country spent about 520 billion rand on healthcare services. The public sector, I think some 250 billion, medical aids, maybe 260. We had the Royal Extended Fund, fund, maybe whatever, a billion. And so it's all healthcare. So let's assume that healthcare services cost the country about 500 billion. The Department of Health makes provision for half of that. But the, the money that comes from the private sector is after tax money. So it's voluntary money. So it's not money that can be transferred or redirected from schemes. There would have to be additional charges that are levied against people who are already paying uh, this money. So there is a first challenge. So your pooling already changes if you take away the medical schemes component. It's not in terrible. If you want to fund that shortfall, it's got uh, very big implications. Are you going to look at VET to collect? But now, you are now even saying the poor must fund uh, additionally into that pot. Are you going to look at companies? Um, and some people have done calculation. They say it might mean maybe a 10, 15, a 10 to 15% increase on company tax if you're going to look at that. Are you going to look at uh, um, pay as you earn, it may mean up to about a 10% increase on personal tax. So mm -hmm. it's not an easy calculation. And so the pooling, we think, can be done. Some people talk about virtual pooling, where you have multiple uh, funders without necessarily increasing the burden uh, much more than it is now. All right, all right. Um, I, I've got some callers lined up who want to ask you um, specific questions, and I know we don't have an awful amount of time left for this conversation. Let me begin with Monde in Kabecha. Good morning. Hello, Monde. Monde, good morning. All right, it looks like we're having an issue with that line. Promise, you're calling us from Durban. Good morning, Promise. Hi, good morning, Kathy and yes. Dr. M. Yeah. So my question is uh, with regards to prescribed minimum benefits in the context of HIV, because Dr. M mentioned HIV medication. So, Doc, um, so you have HIV and then you have cervical cancer, which uh, is a disease associated with HIV infection in black women in the main cervical cancer is a disease of black women. Now, so you provide antiretrovirals, but cervical cancer is subject to limitations. And the question is, would you consider uh, including a, a, a cervical cancer in the HIV package so that women do not have to pay more 
to continue to access a treatment for cervical cancer. You know, and I argue this like from a racial equity, uh, you know, but also from a gender equity because it only affects women and it's mostly like up to 80% is black women. And then if I can slot another question, it's about, um, you know, distribution of the surpluses, which I think belong to the members. I mean, would you consider assisting, like reducing the burden uh, of health uh, resources in the public health care services? Say, for an example, in Limpompo, there is a, a, a problem of maternal health, you know, women who come from neighboring countries to deliver their beds. I mean, would you consider taking a, a portion, a certain number of those women, you know, pay for them so that they deliver in private hospitals because the surplus belongs to us as members. Thank mm. you. All right, promise. Uh, thanks for that question. Dr. Okay. Mtudi? Yeah. So in terms of uh, um, the question around HIV and, and cancer, with any PMB condition, there would be certain protocols that are set up, and they are guided by what we call PMB level of care. Now, this would be... Uh, what best practice dictates and also um, there is a, um, a reference point that treatment will be in line with what the state uh, actually provides. So in as much as PMB uh, uh, almost as an open checkbook, there is limitation according to uh, specific uh, protocols. And I think it's important to to get to understand once you've been diagnosed by a particular for for with a particular illness, you then ask your medical scheme to send you a care plan. A care plan will then dictate or at least uh, uh, describe what services you get. It will say you are able to see a specialist twice mm-hmm. a year, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is possible to fund certain things within a limitation. The second question around whether surpluses can be used to fund other programs. The Medical Schemes Act um, says that uh, the schemes defray costs for the registered beneficiaries. So unfortunately, it is not lawful to take money from a scheme uh, to pay for other services. You may remember, Kefi, there was a big debate when it came to the funding of vaccines where uh, schemes were asked to uh, to cover in addition. The concession that was made was that schemes are used to paying um, a little bit extra for meds because they don't pay at the state tender price. There was that differentiation, but you could not cover somebody who's not a beneficiary of the of the scheme. Ngonde in Kabeha, good morning. Morning, Kathy. Can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Good. Kathy, I'm going to brief. Uh, this NHI, and I assume it is available in the UK. And also in the UK, there's a dole system, which will be similar to our suffer grant. Basically, the dole system is for the poor of the poorest. Now, insofar as the NHI is concerned, I understand it will be funded by the fiscal, assuming that it is certain done, you know, will the poor of the poorest have access to medical care, be it elective surgery or just ordinary medical care. Kathy, thank you. All right. Ngonde, thanks for that question. Dr. Matudi? So the intention of the NHI, as we, as we said, is to uh, provide a, a financing mechanism for universal health coverage. Now, the principles of universal health coverage is that regardless of your status or 
financial uh, status, every citizen should have access to essential healthcare services. So that is always something that is going to be defined. Mm -hmm. And it will be to the extent that the state, or maybe the fund in this case, can afford. So there are guarantees, but there, there are also uh, caveats uh, in it in terms of uh, what what will be accessible. But it, it uh, levels the playing field so mm -hmm. that um, whether you are, it doesn't matter what uh, social standing you are, you will have access to the same healthcare services that are provided by the state. Dr. Mtudi, we're, we're running out of time for this conversation. And I think, as you've mentioned, we, we're still a, a, a long way off from um, getting to the finality of what this bill will eventually look like. What can we expect from medical schemes? Are, are you going to, in the end, even consider taking uh, this bill to court? So at the moment, we, we're following the consultative process. There's still an opportunity um, to submit comments to the select uh, pot, uh, committee uh, for health and social services at the NCOP. We'll also be participating in the town hall meetings when they happen in the in the provinces, and that is the current uh, uh, focus. Um, there are entities that have already indicated that if there's a need, they might litigate, but we are not there yet. We still believe that there is opportunity for, for dialogue, and we will follow that due process. All right. We're going to have to leave it there for this morning. I know still uh, so much for us to unpack, and perhaps one of the questions I think that we can have going into the future is around these medical aid surpluses. So so then what do medical aids do with these surpluses that, uh, you know, pile and pile on? Because, again, it goes back to that per perception, at least in the public eye, of um non-profit organizations as is stated yes but generally that are sitting on lots and lots of resources that could be perhaps um, contributing to the greater good when it comes to the healthcare sector that's where we'll leave it for today with the talking point dr katlao motudi thank you for coming into studio managing director of the board of healthcare funders and that's where we'll leave it up next is the book reading